Be seated. We uh, turn in the Word of God to Colossians chapter 2. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, I'm going to be reading to you the uh, whole of chapter 2. It's not a particularly long chapter, but um, uh, we, we started last week with chapter 1, and uh, my heading in my Bible says, Devotion to Christ above all. And we showed that great theme and how it filters down into all these different areas in the book of Colossians, how Christ preeminent is to make its way into every area. Then in chapter 2, we are going to be considering this evening, my, my subject heading says, neither philosophy nor legalism, but Christ. A um, great many other negatives could be added to that, as we'll see, but the... Uh, the emphasis here of this chapter, complementing the first one, is that we, because we have received everything in Christ, because we are complete in him, we ought not to accept anything less or anything else. Let's hear from Colossians chapter 2. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, Rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and 
worship of angels, intruding into those things which he's not seen vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. Let us pray together. Let's pray once more together. Father in heaven, as you have fulfilled all things for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have received the fullness of your blessing, complete in him, we wish to be rooted and built up in him and to stand firm in him and not be led astray by any false promises, by any alluring philosophies, by any enticing traditions which have come not from him but through men. We pray that you would help us in our study of these passages to sort out the various difficulties of our own world and worship today. and pray that you would keep us near to your heart. We would not only please you, but uh, be able to understand your holy will for our lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it is obvious that we are living through a time of very rapid change. Change in the world, uh, certainly change in the church in general, uh, change in God's worship in particular. Perhaps this congregation wouldn't have stood out at all in the last generation, but we do seem to stand out more and more in in this generation, and you may well be wondering, are we just old-fashioned? Is uh, traditional worship or uh, traditional spiritual life what we are advocating? Is this just a a quirk, a throwback? Um, Because of a number of such questions and specific requests, we began a series of sermons through the book of Colossians to address what are we doing and why are we doing it? The times, they are a-changing. The rate of change, it seems, is accelerating. In a study out last year, Worship Leader magazine reported that, well, you're thinking, well, first of all, why are you reading Worship Leader magazine? I'm not reading it, just, just, checking, just, just checking some of these statistics online. But just so you know, I'm not against contemporary worship and not against things just because they're new or anything like that. But just listen for a second. Worship Leader magazine reported 30 years ago in the church, a song would be sung in worship for 10 to 12 years. All right? That's already a very short time, considering the history of worship when, well, these psalms were around, of course, for thousands of years. Other things were kept for perhaps hundreds of years. 30 years ago, a song would be sung in worship for 10 to 12 years. And some of you remember some of the greatest hits of the 90s, right? Our God is an awesome God. Yeah, you're already losing some of you here. Refiner's Fire, 
our hearts one desire. You guys weren't Christians in the 90s? What happened? All right. Those songs that uh, were written, well-loved, sung every, every Sunday in churches I went to, uh, they, they, were, they were sung and enjoyed for a decade or a little more until they were at last uh, put away as uh, oldies but goodies, perhaps, but, but set on the shelf for good. 10 to 12 years back then. Now, anybody want to guess how long a song lasts? Three to four years until it is permanently dropped. Uh, for, for now. I, mean, I don't know if or whether it can accelerate. I mean, can things change any faster? My, my point is uh, we're in a time of very rapid change. It's not just the music, although I had some hard numbers on that, but we, but we realize, too, in the church, we are constantly being exposed to or encouraged to partake of new practices, sometimes very old practices, sometimes medieval practices, coming back, liturgical traditions, spiritual disciplines, from many sources are finding their way into the life and worship of the church and its members. And it's hard to keep up, and what we're doing today probably won't be what we're doing in five years. And... Um, is it just a matter of old versus new, or should we keep up with the times? Would some of these practices or traditions more enrich our worship in our life? Are we missing out? Um, the, these are very big questions, and the church has always had to ask these questions, but we are forced to ask them c- continually now, on a regular basis, because of the rate of change. And I hope not only to begin to explain why we're doing what we're doing, I'm hoping in this brief series of sermons to be able to give you some tools to start sorting these things out for yourself. Um, How can we discern what the Lord wants? Is something good? Is something bad? Is it all just relative? Culturally relative? Last time, we began considering Colossians chapter 1, the whole chapter, under the great heading of Christ preeminent. And we noticed how this first chapter of the letter paints a particularly full and dramatic and beautiful and well-rounded portrait of this all-sufficient, almighty uh, Savior. And, And Paul repeatedly makes the point how we are complete in him, as though to say, what could anyone offer you that you haven't already received in Jesus? What what other possible uh, addition can you make to what we have in him? And our worship and our lives, we saw, are to reflect that. Uh, in, the, in the second half of the sermon, I took you very briefly through the rest of the letter and how he says, because you are completing Christ, this is how you're to live. This is how you're to act. Being raised with Christ, this is where you are to set your mind. This is how you are to live in your families. These are the ways that you are to uh, continue in the church. At every point, he ties it back to our fullness in Christ. So, he gives the doctrine positively. What can anyone offer you, brothers and sisters, when you have received such a final, full, fabulous revelation in Jesus? Now, today, in chapter 2, we have this doctrine stated negatively. In other words, this chapter is taken up with a variety of ways that we don't 
need and must not accept any such practice, tradition, philosophy, revelation, law, new or old, but are to remain steadfast in what we have received. It's not that other things don't have an appearance of wisdom or of spirituality, perhaps, but he says uh, these things are useless in terms of their benefit to the flesh. We have received everything that's powerful and good. In coming weeks, I, I would like to take you from some of the specifics of the letter and say, hey, what are these traditions of men? I was originally going to combine that in the sermon this evening, and the sermon was already long, and it was getting really, really long. And I gave you a long sermon this morning, and I thought, ah, I'm going to have to cut it in half. So I'm only going to give you just the, uh, just the, the, the outlines of it, and, and then have to look specifically about this matter of these traditions that he talks about. I'm going to pay particular attention to various references. What is this about the traditions? You'll want to know. What is it about the Psalms? Other people want to know. Well, okay, we're going to pay special attention to special matters. Today, the second half of my introduction, I'm going to have this second part where we take the big picture, okay? Last time, Christ is sufficient in everything, in every way. He is preeminent. In him dwells all the fullness of the deity, we have received it in him. This time, negatively. Beware, lest anybody else uh, come in to uh, cheat you or to tell you uh, what you're missing out on. You're not missing out on anything. Here is, in this chapter, chapter 2, an overview of the spiritual dangers. I'd like to begin by just going through and showing you some of these things. Verse 4, there are people who speak words that are persuasive, though they are actually deceiving. You know, they, they, we, we, there's something in us that are like, yeah, that, that, that sounds really good. And the truth is, it's the deceitfulness of sin. Plausible, enticing teachings that we must avoid. He refers in verse 8 to a philosophy that will cheat us or rob us um, even of our salvation in the extreme, chapter 1, verse 23, there are deceptions that are vain or empty. Uh, they are things which are according to the traditions of men and the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ, verse 8. Uh, by the way, I don't have the ESV in front of me here, but the ESV has, uh, I think it's at verse 8, uh, elemental spirits. Is that verse 8, somebody? Elemental spirits. All right. Um, uh, there was uh, there was a, a, some papers that uh, came out on this back at the end of the end of the last century, and so uh, people thought, okay, elemental spirits kind of goes with some other things. Uh, this word can have that sense, and it goes well with context. Uh, our friend Ernest Clark almost did his PhD on this verse, he, and he says he assures me now, no, that was that was one document that was misdated. That wasn't used as elemental spirits, actually, until two centuries later. They were jumping on the bandwagon too quick to try to get the latest scholarship in. And basic principles, it is, he says. He's an ESV reader and lover, so he's just letting me know. He let, I'm letting you know. Basic principles, what I have, does seem to be the best reading. You remember that when God had brought his people into the promised land, he was very clear. You are to worship according to what I tell you. Don't add, don't take away. And explicitly in chapter 12, he says, do not go and ask how they worship their gods. In fact, they do everything that I hate. 
um, you are not to do either what you think is right in your eyes. Um, Deuteronomy 12, you shall not do as we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes has a certain contemporary ring, I think. But uh, the great emphasis repeated here and throughout the Bible is, look, although there are relatively few commands about worship in the New Testament, one big one, one warning that continually comes up in our Lord uh, throughout his, the apostles' writing is beware the teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. There's something called vain worship, which is a human invention, which Paul says we are absolutely to be aware of. Whatever I command you, says the Lord, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it. You shall not take away from it. The general principle. There is a form of worship that we are to receive and observe having received it the fullness, through the fullness of Christ. You notice there are several references here now to the doctrine of what we uh, sometimes call the Judaizers, that is to say, Christian Jews who taught falsely, heretically, that uh, the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That was a very big deal in the ancient church. There was a there was a council about that in chapter 15 of Acts. But um, these practices and ceremonies of Judaism, so here's things, they're not the traditions of men, here's things that God himself had commanded. Okay? Days and seasons and, uh, and observances that God himself had commanded the Jews to keep in that day. Food laws, a calendar, a festival, Sabbaths, Things which are a shadow of that which is to come, the substance is Christ. Okay. Certainly it seems referring to the teaching of this party of the church, which at one point had even swept Peter up, you remember, so that Paul had to withstand Peter to his face. So not, not only just the, the general things of men are bad, even those things which God himself had previously uh, uh, enjoined for the old covenant days, must not continue and certainly must not be put on the Gentiles. So Paul goes on. There's this matter in verse 18 of false humility in the worship of angels. People are having visions. They are having supernatural revelations, things which he says is all in people's carnal mind, uh, doctrines and practices which may or will cheat you of your reward. This is kind of the the fringe Christian pseudo-spirituality I mentioned last time. I mean, you know, angels and visions and things that are in the Bible, but he says be, be, beware the, these things which are, which are potentially going to cheat you of your reward. You, you have received everything. You, uh, what did he say here? Um, we, 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 I'm praying that you attain to the riches of the full assurance of understanding of the mystery of God in Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have received everything in Christ. We are to recognize there is nothing that's hidden from us that we need to have that will help us or aid us. Uh, these pseudo-Christian things we need to be aware of. And then verse, verse 20 down to verse 23, a blanket general condemnation of all the commandments and doctrines of men that have come from the world and not from Christ. Therefore, if you 
died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Why is there living in it? Do you subject yourself to, revelate, to regulations? Uh, this legalism, these, uh, these ascetic practices which came in again through the monastic order and come back again a certain time of year. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. All these things that perish concerning the, uh, according to the doctrines of men. Well, here it is. Um, we, we, we have a number of things to beware of. Since we have already received everything in Christ, we cannot add, we uh, cannot deviate from it. And I would like to just give you the, 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 the doctrine or what I'm, what I'm putting forward to you, summarizing it here by Dr. Morton Smith's commentary on the Book of Church Order. He writes, The power of the church is purely ministerial and declarative. That is to say, I'm, I'm a minister of Christ. I don't make laws. I'm not a magistrate. I'm a minister. I, I serve according to his laws. Uh, it's declarative, not legislative. I... I say what he says, nothing more. The church, he says, is only to hold forth the doctrine, enforce the laws, and execute the government which Christ has given her. She is to add nothing of her own to and subtract nothing from what her Lord has established. Hence, we absolutely deny that she has any discretion in things not commanded. She can proclaim no laws that Christ has not ordained, institute no ceremonies which he has not appointed, create no offices which he has not prescribed, and exact no obedience which he has not enjoined. She does not enter the wide domain which he's left indifferent, and by her authority bind the conscience which he has left free. All right, so very good quote, but probably lost half of you on that one. It's like this. Uh, a police officer pulls, pulls you over. He says, I, I don't like the way you went down Main Street. I'm going to give you a ticket. You say, wait a minute. <laughs> You're an enforcer of the law. Nobody gave you the right to say, hey, I don't like this, and so therefore this is what we're going to do. The police officer only has authority as far as the law was given to him. He doesn't make up laws. He cannot compel obedience in any other area. Citizens should not live as though a policeman can compel obedience uh, to what they think is right. That would, that would be actual tyranny, right? That would be Canada. All right, all right. People, sorry. People don't uh, usually begin by taking away any doctrines or practices. No, they say, okay, yeah, all these things that we've received are good. They're helpful to a point, but we need some more. Look, look at these other traditions, philosophies, practices that will help you become more, see the buzzwords in this chapter, mature, spiritual, knowledgeable, holy, give you victory, or indul uh, victory over the indulgence of the flesh. This is the kind of thing that's a temptation to spiritual people. Paul says, no, 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 no. No, in Christ we've received all that we need. There is nothing more, no human tradition, human wisdom, no mystery, no ecstatic experience, no angelic revelation, no vision, no calendar, no food, no ritual, no worship practice that has any power or any divine authority to take you any higher in your spiritual life, in fact, only lower. Nothing will take you closer to, to Jesus, only farther. You may not realize that. You may be deceived for a time. These things are persuasive. They have the appearance of wisdom, he says, to seek anything else 
It may agree very well with the traditions of the age, with your inclination, with an appearance of wisdom in the short term, but it will only lead you further away. Beware. He he says it in so many ways. Take heed, verse 4, lest anyone deceive you with persuasive words. Beware, verse 8, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of man and the basic principles of the world, not Christ. Verse 16, let no one judge you in food or drink or festivals or Sabbaths, the things which are shadows when the substance is Christ. Verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward uh, and so forth, uh, not holding fast to the head. And verse 20 again, why do you subject yourselves to regulations don't touch, don't, ta- don't ha- taste, don't handle? Uh, called elsewhere, by the way, the doctrine of demons. All these things which concern things which perish with the using and not according to the, and according to the doctrines and commandments of men. Things that have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. All right. So this is the, the doctrine. Uh, you're, you're saying, well, yeah, what kinds of things? What about this? What about that? Um, I'm going to have to leave you till next week, and you'll probably be pretty sleepy next week. I'll have to keep it short then, too, because of daylight savings, I realize. So I'm going to break, break this up, but I would like to meditate with you just on the principle here for a few minutes before we conclude. Um, God wants us to worship him with hearts full of love and joy, and He wants us to recognize that he has given us the proper way of worshiping. He wants us to worship him in spirit, yes, and in truth. These things are not contradictory. It is to be at one time joyful and lawful. If you you love me, Jesus says, you'll obey my commandments. Put it together. Um, Now, a congregation, especially these days, more and more considers itself to be the audience and considers the people up front to be the worship leaders, musicians, minister, that that these are the people that are um, doing the presentation, if you like. And uh, nothing could be further from the biblical idea of worship. God is the audience of worship. God is the audience. We come before him and rejoice, as we sang earlier. We are the ones who are doing what he has asked us to do in the way that he's asked us to do it with full hearts in order that we might uh, please him and be blessed in him. The audience is God. What we are offering to him are spiritual sacrifices, as we read earlier, uh, sacrifices which he himself has appointed to glorify him that please him. True worship is and our joy are in the same direction. We don't think, well, hey, if, if we have to be uh, so careful about what we're doing, what we're not doing, isn't that going to take away our joy? No, nope. in the Bible, uh, these things are going to be together. And as a matter of fact, God says, if you're not careful about what you're doing and not doing, all these things are going to make you weaker. They are not going to make you stronger. So uh, we have this requirement uh, to be mindful. Now, let's see. We read last week of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. You remember how joyful and exuberant 
the situation was in chapter 9 as the, um, the priesthood was inaugurated and consecrated. Aaron made the first offering. He lifted up his hands and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord came down among them, and fire came from heaven and, fi- and, dis- and, and, and consumed the offering. And the people shouted and fell on their faces. What a great day it was for the worship of God in Israel. Israel has a priesthood so full of joy they were. And on that next day, Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, were so full of excitement. They took their censers, they made an incense offering, and they forgot to do, uh, they forgot that they were doing something the Lord hadn't told them to do. Uh, we read earlier, we read later rather, they're supposed to take fire from the altar. They didn't do that. They offered the strange fire before the Lord, which the Lord had not commanded them. And that fire came out once more from the presence of the Lord, but this time consumed Nadab and Abihu. And Moses says to Aaron, thus says the Lord, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Before the people, I must be glorified. We need to have worship, Aaron, that is not only joyful, as God has clearly commanded, but, but also mindful and obedient. And worshiping God according to his commandments is not to kill our joy and to pleasure. Rules in so many ways actually protect the pleasure. I, I ask you baseball players, is a baseball game more fun when the rules are forgotten and broken or ignored? Is a marriage more loving and happy when the rules governing marriage are broken or ignored? Well, it is no different for worship. There is a form of worship which, in the words here, is full of Christ, has value, uh, glorifies Jesus. This is a worship that's going to bless you, and this is the worship to which you must learn to give yourself. One minister I, I know told the story about himself growing up. He says, when I was a lad of nine or ten years old, I gave my dad a record for his birthday. Record, LP, right? Okay. The truth of the matter was that the record was one that I wanted to have, but was not one that my dad would ever have chosen or be likely to listen to. I suppose when I bought it, I thought that if I liked it, he would like it too. But... And I remember this very distinctly, as if it were yesterday. The feeling has stayed with me all these years. I remember being very ashamed when he opened my gift, because at that moment, it was so obvious that the gift I had supposedly given to him, I was really giving to myself. He got that record because I wanted to listen to it. This is something that's Uh, so insidious and dangerous and that makes us more and more self-centered people. It makes us worshipers of ourselves and not of God. All these things which may appear to be great and delight us are going to take us further and further away from Christ. One uh, um, particular bishop in the Church of England, tongue-in-cheek, writes this. To become a successful pastor... He writes, the weakness of your seminary training in the art of worship is that it was built upon the assumption that public worship is the public worship of God. Now, no one, least of all the author, would deny this is a very nice assumption and perhaps the way things ought to be. But in point of fact, this is not the way things are. And if you are so foolish as to operate in the parish on this assumption, you will not only never be a bishop, 
You'll never get out of the sticks. What your good Christian people want to worship is not God, but themselves, although they do not know this. And only a pastor who expects to depart shortly for other fields of endeavor will have the temerity to explain it to them. But you need to know it, for this is the correct assumption upon which all successful public worship is built. Well, I'm not planning to depart shortly. But I do want you to know the danger. The danger that Paul sets before us in so many ways. Of all these, of all these things which people will really like. Uh, uh, he's not speaking about one particular uh, error or heresy you notice. He's, he's covering the gamut. He's saying anything, anything other than what you have received in Christ is of no value, is going to lead you further astray, is going to corrupt what you already have been given. So, in general, we are to worship uh, um, according to his excellent greatness. Um, sorry, just a second here. God wants us to worship him with hearts full of love and joy and to worship him purely, rightly, according to his word and law. These things are not contradictory. They are at the same time um, joyful and lawful. If you love me, you will keep my commands. The hearts of hypocrites are far from me, Jesus says, worshiping in vain, teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. I am certainly not saying that all that is offered to God according to his word will look or sound like this. We, they have a great amount of freedom of expression in worship, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm not going to make the case that uh, songs written from this time to this time are the only songs that we're going to sing. This kind of music is going to be better. I, I am simply saying here, true worship is going to be in spirit and in truth. It will conform to God's rule as it is joyful in heart. And we need to beware. Beware, he says, all that would lead us astray from Christ. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we pray that our desire is that you should be magnified in our church, in our hearts, in our lives, in such a way that others would awaken to your glory and greatness, that they would see the Lord high and lifted up. It is good for us to draw near to you and pray that we might do so as your holy priesthood, mindful of all that you have instructed us and commanded us. We, we pray, our Father, that you would deliver us from the allure and attraction of anything that would take us away from being rooted and grounded in Christ, anything that we have received in him. And we pray that you would grant us to see his beauty, his glory, his love, his wisdom, his goodness and grace and strength and patience and holiness, that all these things in Christ would deliver us from any other allure. We want nothing more than to have you as our God in every way. And so it is we would seek you with our whole hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name.